Hello and welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Ace Cultural Tours. Travelling back to the 9th century to witness one of the major turning points in English history. Winston Churchill regularly tops the Greatest Britain of All Time charts, but his own vote for this accolade apparently went to the man we are going to discuss today. Alfred the Great is the only British king to enjoy such an admiring epithet. No other monarch's reputation has survived with such a rosy glow. Our time travel today in the company of world-renowned historian Michael Wood reveals exactly why Alfred is so well thought of. Michael takes us back to 878, a pivotal year in our history, when, against all the odds, the Viking invaders were defeated, pushed out of Alfred's kingdom of Wessex, and the geopolitics were set for the following centuries. Michael Wood is the author of highly praised books on English history, including In Search of the Dark Ages, Doomsday and In Search of England. Michael was born and educated in Manchester, where he is currently Professor of Public History. He is a Fellow of the Royal Historical Society, the Royal Society of Arts and the Society of Antiquaries. I spoke to Michael the other day. Welcome to Travels Through Time, Michael. We're going to go on a very exciting journey today, back to one of the real turning points in uh, British history. Uh, But before we do, uh, I was wanting to ask you, today we're going to be talking about the new edition of your seminal book, In Search of the Dark Ages. And one of the, I know one of the reasons that you have, uh, it's been uh, republished and you've expanded it is because even in academic history over the last few decades, there has been a huge, huge changes in the sort of opening up of different areas of knowledge, like women's history and, um, as you say, that this sort of renegotiation of our uh, idea about the empire and what it meant and what actually happened. So can you talk a little bit about that? Well, perhaps first tell us about the original edition of the book and how it came about, because I know that it was in conjunction with a documentary series, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right, actually. And, and, and it's a strange happenstance because I was working in, in current affairs in the BBC when I proposed a single film about Offa, the king who'd built Offa's dyke, which actually was proposed. I, was, I wanted to do it for a friend in Pebble Mill who had an hour-long slot in, in Birmingham in Midlands Television and my boss in BBC Two said well yeah of course you can do it but why don't you do it for us on BBC Two so I did one film and one of those strange things that happened you know uh, the next day I got a series of great reviews including a wonderful review by the the top TV critic of the day and when I came in at the office then my boss said oh well why don't you make some more so we we patched these films together, still working in current affairs, with ten days filming for each film, on a 
a non-existent budget, you know. I can, <laughs> I can remember um, filming the Viking destruction of Ripon, having borrowed a blowtorch from a garage, making the air <laughs> kind of wobble in front of the camera to, as the, as the bl- Viking blitz happened on, on Ripon. And, um, and, and the series kind of took off, you know, people... There's something about the period and the, you know, the style of storytelling as well. We were very strong on storytelling. Uh, it, it it did really well. And then after the first series, somebody came to me from BBC Books and said, "Oh, you do? Do you want to do a book?" And actually, the book was cobbled together. I, I'm ashamed to admit, very very fast. And in those days, of course, um, there were no computers. <laughs> And the whole thing was, the whole thing was a typescript. So the editing was, to be honest, was uh, looking through the old book now. The, the editing was really uh, a bit hit, hit and miss, and there were a lot of, a lot of errors and typos and stuff like that. It's, it's uh, you know, life with computers makes makes writing much easier. But that was in the, in the dark ages of book production almost. Um, but the book did really well. It was it was before the Sunday Times bestseller list was f- formed, but it was number one in 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 one bestseller list, uh, and uh, um, and it kind of took off. So I carried on making films then, and I moved out of current affairs into doing straight history. And how? I mean, that must have fe- you must have felt so. I mean, you must have been so happy because I know you were you studied history at Oxford, and then you started doing postgraduate history, and then decided it wasn't for you, and then went into the BBC as a broadcaster. But did you always want to do history? Did, did, did you kind of, well, your plan? Yeah, yes. Oh, oh yes, my dream was to do history. Um, back in Withenshaw in, in Manchester, I, 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 you know, hoped perhaps um, I might be a history teacher at Pound, a local Poundswick Grammar School or something like that. And actually, I, was, I did a postgraduate um, research in Oxford on the early 10th century and the origins of the English state and the, especially the period of Athelstan. And it wasn't that I thought it wasn't for me. Um, it was just, it was such a big subject and there was so much that was undiscovered that um, it, it, what I was doing didn't conform easily to the structure of a, um, you know, a doctoral thesis at that point and I knew I needed more time to work on it. So I took as a, a job as a journalist in television, fully intending that I would actually um, uh, finish that. Uh, so I always wanted to do that. And in fact, you know, I've published a lot on the period of Athelstan over the years, both popular and academic. And I've still got two books in my drawer, one of which is completed, which is a kind of teeth grindingly detailed study of a lost Latin text on the reign of King Athelstan. So... Um, uh, and a time allowing touch wood i i um i still hope to to publish a the long lost the, the lost life of king athelstan for a university for oxford university press and and the, and secondly the grand sweep um novelistic answer to bernard cornwell's last kingdom you know the real story <laughs> and which type of history do you prefer or can you not choose between the the teeth grinding and the sweeping popular. No, I think the sweeping popular is more fun. And actually, looking at the new edition of the Dark Age book, uh, you know, it's not completely rewritten, but there's lots that are rewritten, and I've intruded little stories as well as the new chapters. You know, on Athelflaed, the Lady of the Mercians, or Eadgith, Athelstan's sister, who was the Queen of Germany, and you know, uh, and and suddenly sitting down and rather swiftly, admittedly, 
sketching out new stories was fantastic. Um, but I think if you can, I really enjoyed it. But obviously, I think if you can keep it anchored in the sources and, and try to wear the learning lightly, but give people a sense of where the where the material comes from, you know, how do we know? How do we not know? How do we get to the personalities of these the people? You know, when we when we study history, most of all, we want to you want to get to the people and well, how did they feel? In what ways are they like us? In what way are they, you know, different? Well, and human nature is basically the same, I think. Don't you think? I mean, I don't, I don't think the sort of essence of being human has changed. No, no, I do. I do think that, and that's most of all. That's what you want to know. And some of the, of course, some of these stories from the Dark Ages, for example, are are um, you're not trying to really uncover personality because there is no personality to be recovered like the 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 myth of king arthur that's that's a fascinating um piece of source criticism but when you get to the people like alfred the great or athelflad or athelstan you really deem you can really investigate personality and that's where it really comes alive i think yeah and to go back to the idea of history being this kind of alive thing that's not set in stone and is constantly changing. Um, I know that one of the things um, that uh, the reasons that the you've expanded the book is because there's been so many incredible discoveries in the period since you wrote the original book. So can you just tell us, give us a, a few examples? Yeah, of... yeah, yeah, sure. The, the uh, I mean, some amazing things, the Staffordshire Horde, for example, I mean the most incredible collection of Anglo Anglo-Saxon Old English gold work, um, and in the the new chapter on Penda, the the King of Mercia, I've I've um, uh, you know I've been in a dialogue with the experts on this since the thing was discovered, and I made a speech at the opening at Stoke of the exhibition back in two thousand and ten, uh, connecting the Staffordshire treasure with the with Bede's account of this extraordinary this unprecedented, never-before-seen ransom that was paid in treasure to the Mercian king as a payoff by the defeated king of the Northumbrians. And, um, uh, and just raising the question of, uh, of the, if the date is so spot-on, could this be part of the treasure, you know, that it was buried on a Mercian royal estate? Uh, so uh, Sutton Hoo, the great burial ground of the East Anglian kings, has been re-excavated with some some really fantastic finds, you know. Um, there's things on people as well. Uh, not so long ago, the tomb was opened in Magdeburg of Queen Eadgith of Germany, who was the daughter of King Edward the Elder, therefore the sister of Athelstan, who married the Otto, the future king of Germany, the the, 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 the founder of the First Reich, if, if you want to put it that way, and uh, who had very close relations with the, the old English kingdom. And she became the most powerful woman, important woman in Europe, you know. So uh, many, many things, manuscripts as well. Uh, in the 1990s, mid-90s, there was published... Uh, uh, a text from a manuscript in Milan which were teaching notes of the pupils of Archbishop Theodore of Tarsus, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and Abbot Hadrian of Canterbury, the man of African race, as Bede calls him, um, who founded the most famous school in the Old English period, but really the most important school in British history, educational history, I would say. And this manuscript 
in Milan contains the teaching notes of their pupils. So you actually have them... On, these are biblical commentaries, although there are commentaries on grammar, all sorts of things still being discovered. But the biblical commentaries actually quote Theodore and Hadrian talking in class, as it were, about um, the 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 flora and fauna of the Near East, the landscapes of Mesopotamia and Syria, the, the what what Constantinople is like, um, even explaining words that the, the English students didn't know. For instance, what's a melon, says one, and, 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 and Theodore says, well, melons are like cucumbers, only, only, <laughs> only much, much bigger. And in the city of Edessa in Syria, they grow so big that you can only carry two of them on one camel. <laughs> you know, it's absolutely fantastic. Or, or Abbot Hadrian talking about the Arabs. You know, these were both guys who had fled the Arab invasions in the 630s, you know. Um, they're refugees, from Syria and from Libya. <laughs> Can you believe it? Yeah, it's amazing. And th- when you get those manuscripts where you actually hear the voices, where it's not just a biblical text or yeah, something yeah, very yeah. formal, it, yeah. there's something magical about it. It's yeah. literally like having your ear at the keyhole. It's it? absolutely great. The, the, the guy who discovered that, that manuscript, Bernard Bischoff, and he discovered them initially in researches before the Second World War, but they weren't published until the 1990s. Um, he said that, that the experience of a paleographer, a student of old manuscripts, is, is the same every time, uh, that, that it never changes. You open the manuscript and you, you can imagine turning the pages of vellum and there's the wormholes and the burn marks and the erasures and the scribbles and everything else. And then your eye alights on one detail and then the barrier of the intervening centuries just falls away. And it, it, it's absolutely true. That's an absolutely magical moment. You can well, we'll talk about one one of these later when we come yeah. to when we come to the item we'd like to bring back from the past. Yeah. But but uh, the idea that you can be there with a little manuscript sitting there in the British Library, and there's the scribbles by Athelstan's. Um, court scholar or whoever it is you know so uh, yeah no the manuscripts are one of the great things and the manuscript discoveries in the <clears> 40 <throat> years since writing the book are are you know totally transformed there was no catalogue back in 19 in, in in the 1980s you know no uh, you couldn't you didn't know where to access things you know it was all word of mouth you know somebody yeah. would come back from Paris saying god I've seen this manuscript that's not catalogued and it's got this you know so yeah and there must still be other things I love that thought especially I think the Vatican there must be so many many manuscripts there that no one's looked at for centuries that are waiting to be discovered well well they're all catalogued but the question is have they been looked at in detail there's a um, when we did the film on Alfred the Great um, there is a manuscript in the Vatican which has fascinating text which is uh, Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy mm. now there's a, there's a text which has meant so much to the western tradition you know it was translated by Queen Elizabeth I by Chaucer you know and of course this famous translation by Alfred the Great and here's the here's the Latin text of Consolation of Philosophy from the ninth century but the margins are covered with notes in a Welsh possibly Cornish hand now we happen to know that when Alfred did his translation, the person who helped him on the on the uh, the translation was his Welsh bishop Asser, 
of Saint <gasps> David. You see, we Who know wrote we, his life story. We, yeah, and we know that we know that Asa was his helper on that translation. And here's this manuscript, and there's no doubt that the notes relate to the translation. You know, he's explaining what the Furies are in Greek mythology or something like that. And, and sure enough, it's there in the Old English text. So um, we did. We asked permission to film that. The Vatican Library had been closed for a bit, but uh, and they said, yeah, that sounds interesting. So actually, we um, we went to the Vatican Library just to do that manuscript and uh, and it was just a great great experience you know yeah incredible um so before we get in our time machine I wanted to ask you one one last question because you have written about a really dizzying array of different subjects uh, your last couple of books what one was about Ovid there were you've written about China and I just wanted to ask you about that because obviously today we are going to be talking about very English British history um but how do you choose which, what you're going to write about next? And, and how do you approach when you're writing about an entirely new subject? Well, I, I'm part of a small film company and we've been making uh, documentaries for many years. Some of the big things that we've done, which we've done in co-production with America and the BBC, have been grand sweep histories like uh, um, the story of India or the story of China. And on something like the story of China, uh, I've been thinking about it for a long while because we'd already done the Indian series and the American, it had gone down fantastically everywhere, but in America they, they just w- really wanted us to do the same thing on China. Now I've been interested in China you know, since I was at school and I'd first filmed and travelled in China in the early 80s, you know, so you start thinking about how you would do it. And then I went on a recce at the end of 2013 and, and although those films went out in 2016... And in America in 2017, I've actually been working. I've done a dozen films in China since 2014, really. And uh, and what happens is, you you have a team of people, including ace researchers and people who speak Chinese, but you you immerse yourself as intensively in in the subject as you as you you possibly can. And sometimes that's over a period of years. It's longer than you would take to do a doctorate, probably, and and uh, um, and the great thing about making television is that you you have the opportunity to to see things on the ground. And after we did the story of China series, for example, I did a series on the Deng Xiaoping's reform at opening up from which the fortieth anniversary, nineteen seventy eight, twenty eighteen. And uh, and I went back to China and, and spent nearly a month of really intensive interviews all over China with people who had actually been there at that moment, you know, including the peasants in a village in Anhui who had, um, you know, rejected communism and uh, made this tremendous change to, um, you know, uh, to sell their surplus and break with the government at the risk of their own lives. So... You, you, two things go on in that you do an immense, immense amount of research, but you, you have this opportunity to interview people as well. So, those are really, really big projects that that uh, you can take a long time over. And of course, we've done, you know, we've done adventure history as well. We've done uh, in the footsteps of Alexander the Great, yeah, and on on the ground across to India through the whole of, you know, the, the Middle East. 
we've did the conquistadors on the, the journeys of the great con- conquests of the Spanish New World, which amazingly is perhaps our widest seen series in the world. You know, 140 or 150 countries and territories have taken that Latin American history, interestingly enough. Um, whereas some of the others are just, um, you know, interesting ideas that you don't spend a huge amount of time over you know like most people have read read Ovid in the past and Ovid's 2000 anniversary came up at the end of 2017 and I just said to the BBC Arts I said what about a little film on 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 Ovid and um, and of course the moment you look at it you find all sorts of quirky things like Bob Dylan is an Ovid fan and has done a whole album based on Ovid's songs without, without advertising it you know and and uh, but we've done quite a few things on poetry over the years. We did a four-part biography of Shakespeare, seeing Shakespeare in a historical context, you know, as a as a sixteenth-century man living through the, Rene- the the Reformation and the religious conflicts in Warwickshire and all that sort of stuff. And uh, and the recent one we did a year or two ago, China's greatest poet, with Ian McKellen doing the, the readings, was was another of these interests. You know, I've been interested in Du Fu since I was at school. And uh, in translation, of course, and uh, just had the chance before the COVID outbreak hit, really hit China that that autumn to to make that film. So, in it's a long-winded answer to your question, but sometimes we do things that are pretty swift, and uh, uh, and sometimes we do things that are a, an almost lifetime's investment. You know, I mean. Uh, the last ten years, I've been heavily invested in China, and out of that. Uh, came the the story of China book. And can I ask? I mean, perhaps you won't be able to answer this question, but what's next on your list? Well, I, well, I, if I had a TV ambition, and I must say, after COVID, I'm not quite sure I have the same enthusiasm about investing an enormous amount of time and effort. But my big um, final thing would be to do the story of the Greeks. After the story, after the story of India and the story of China, it's obvious that that's what you, you, one would love to do. And um, uh, you know, I've loved Greece all my life, and uh, uh, you know, I think a grand sweep history of the Greeks would be would be brilliant. But at the moment, I'm doing a little book on on um, following up the China's greatest poets films, um, which uh, is is a journey round China using my diary. Uh, diary and photos and maps small book but uh, there's no such book exists in china so um my my the my agent thinks that's well, going to be a big that's market. going to be a big I mean, it is a big market well we did a we did a promo for our uh, on a, on an iphone for our um, the deng xiaoping the reform and opening up 40 years on which was stuck on the 10 cent website and we got 100 million hits in 24 hours. So the, 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 you're in a different market there. You know? <laughs> well, I think um, we have to get back to um, our, our journey. And um, so I'm going to ask you the question we ask all of our guests, which is, Michael, if you could travel back to any year in history, which year would it be? Okay, well, there's several years, obviously, that I would love to travel back to. And I'd give anything to meet William Shakespeare in a pub on Cheapside and be able to ask him all the questions we'd all love to ask him. But, 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 you know, we're talking about the Dark Ages and everything else and my my big uh, research project in life really has been that period between Alfred the Great and Athelstan. And, and I've chosen the year 878, 
which um, may not immediately ring a bell with all your listeners, but actually, if there's any year in our history, which is a year of destiny, it's 878. Okay, can you just briefly give us an overview of what's what's happening in 878 before we go to your first scene? Sure, this is the, this is the, uh, the period of the Viking invasions. Uh, the Viking invasions had, attacks had probably started back in the 750s, in fact, and uh, uh, but Viking armies, Danish armies, didn't winter over till the eight sixties, and then things turned very serious. And the 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 old kingdoms of Anglo-Saxon England, East Anglia, Northumbria, Mercia, you know, one by one they were picked off by what we now know were large armies. We were used to be taught that Viking armies were small, and then recently. The Viking camp at Torxey in Lincolnshire was excavated, and it was 55 hectares, and, and that's just one branch of the Great Army, or the Anglo-Saxons call the Great Army. And uh, uh, thousands of people were in that camp, although it included non-combatants and, and, and all the rest. So um, the threat becomes big. And then at the end of the 860s, uh, the East Angles are defeated, and their king, the future St Edmund, was killed. Uh, York was sacked and their kings were killed. Mercia was in, uh, invaded and, and partitioned with a puppet king put in. And by the end of 877, the last kingdom, if I can use that phrase, <laughs> was Wessex under their young king, Alfred, who by chance had become king uh, in 871 when he was about 22 um, he'd never been intended to be king. He had older brothers, but one by one they died or been killed. And and there he was. And the, the crucial moment comes, the winter of 877, the major p- part of the Viking great army, the Mikkel Herre, as the, as the Anglo-Saxons called it, um, they'd ca- made their winter camp in Gloucester. And then, quite by surprise, uh, soon after Christmas, they launched a surprise attack right through the middle of Wessex. And that's where the story begins. And I thought that was an interesting aspect that they often attacked on because they were pagans, the Vikings. They weren't Christian yet. And so they often attacked on religious holidays as a sort of... policy because they knew that the um, English would be, I don't know, um, you know, would not be sort of focusing on uh, and be ready to fight. Is that is that correct? Yeah, sometimes in in the Irish annals, you get the big Viking attacks on great saints days in in famous holy places where the pilgrims all gather and there's a lot of money and there's a lot of loot and all that. Um, And in this case, they may have and I, I did adopt this story, although actually I was looking last night at the text again, and it's not absolutely certain that they did this. But the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which was written up in Winchester, in Alfred's Winchester, under his supervision, um, 15 years later, says, uh, I'll read it to you. Herrhine bastalse herra on midna winter, offer twelfta nicht to Chippenham. And you read on West Saxna land, the 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 Viking army. They they use the the verb 
um, bestalled, bestealed, they stole. It was, uh, in other words, we weren't expecting it. They came secretly and they suddenly right down into into um, into Wessex um, and they make Chippenham their base and the mention of Twelfth Night is that just a is that just a date or was the festival of Twelfth Night being celebrated in the Royal Hall at Chippenham which is an important um, northern royal residence of the of the West Saxon kingdom we don't know but what's when you read the account what you can see is that they it must have been a massive attack. And they went straight down from Chippenham. Once they'd established their base there, they went straight down through the heart of, of Wessex. And the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says that they, they rode over the West Saxon land. They reduced the people to subjection, or the people fled. And it says that uh, uh, at one point, that they fled over the sea. Uh, it's not quite clear. Does that mean over Southampton water? Not. I don't think it means across the Channel. It's probably to the Isle of Wight or or across Southampton water to escape. So um, uh, devastating. And we've got other we've got other accounts that that not of this, these events, but of the 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 outcome of these events. For instance, it's only fifty years later that we we learn that the alderman of Wiltshire, Wolfherer, uh, actually submitted to the Danes and and he and his wife and they and they go overseas. I think in the end, um, and but his grandson had to sort of restore his estates after that because they'd been confiscated in punishment for abandoning the king, you know. So it gives you a tiny insight into what things were actually like at that moment. Um, and then, of course, you come to one of the most famous passages in, in, in British history that they rode over the land and they subdued it. Uh, and, and everybody gave in. Buton van Kuninger Alfreda, except King Alfred. And he struggled on. It says, He little were with a tiny force, unierthliche, after woodum for. And on Morfastenum, he, in great difficulties, through the woods, after Woodhamford, he went through the forests, and on the wild places, the moors, the fens, Morfastenum. Um, and so he he's fleeing from them, and it's a desperate thing, because they're out to get him and to kill him. That's what they did with the other kings of the East Angles. And the, and the, either you become a puppet king, or they kill you. And and uh, Chael, Wolf of Mercia, became a puppet king and provided them with supplies and everything they wanted, you know, and, and they partitioned the land. The kings of Northum the Northumbrians and the East Angles, they killed, you know. Edmund of East Anglia is supposed to have been shot through with arrows, you know. So Alfred is desperately, um, in great difficulties, Asser says, his his friend later, you know, struggling through the woods and the forest to escape and, and um, with hit and run raids. And, of course, that's the period when you've got the the wonderful later story of Alfred and the cakes. Um, um, the, uh, and, and everybody says, oh, it's just a, that's just a fairy story. I, <laughs> I don't think it's a fairy story, actually. The, the two, the two it, it, it enshrines, it's about food supply in a guerrilla war. 
and the and the two great stories about this one is the burning of the cakes and the other is which is v- well recorded from the early 10th century in Northumbria so it's obviously a real story is that they were wandering through the marshes of Somerset and uh, and they come upon a pilgrim and the pilgrim uh, and they've they they're starving they've got nothing left to eat apart from a tiny amount but they share what they have with the pilgrim and that night uh, then they miraculously uh, put their nets out that afternoon and they take a they they get a good harvest so they can eat well that night and alfred goes to sleep and he then then he realizes that uh, that the figure appears to him him in a dream of the of the pilgrim and it's saint cuthbert of lindisfarne and cuthbert says you have to stay courageous and and uh, keep the keep the faith as it were and if you hold on your descendants will become kings of all england and r- rulers of albion you know so and that story that's a t- an early 10th century story as we have it and i think it's, it's absolutely it's probably true that the the west saxons believed that Cuthbert had interceded with them and was their protecting, their guiding uh, spirit in this time of incredible danger. And, and and another source says that Alfred's family were with him, which is really interesting. So um, the eldest child was Athelflaed, who later became the Lady of the Mercians, who would have been seven or eight then. But uh, uh, whether this is true or not, but it makes sense, you see. He wouldn't leave his family. Yeah, where else would they be? Yeah, he, he wouldn't would, have left them yeah, behind. Yeah, he <laughs> wouldn't leave them unprotected. So you've got this account, and Asa, Asa kind of adds to this account, saying, you know, at that time he had a small band of nobles with him and certain soldiers and thanes. It was a, it was a, a really small body. As the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says, a little wered. And, and, and he was leaving a, leading a life constantly on the move. In great, in great distress, and he had nothing to live on except what he could forage by raids, either on the Danes or on his own people who had uh, submitted to them. You know, so you get this wonderful insight into what it was actually like. And there's no doubt, I think, that those stories, that passage from Asso, is Alfred telling Asso, "This is what it was like." You know, yeah. and um, yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah, so that's the situation he's in for between the 6th of January and the 23rd of March, which is Easter. Okay, and that is your first scene, so let's go there now. Yeah, the first date is... Well, the first date is the 6th of January. The build-up to the second date, which is in May, starts at Easter. And then we know that Alfred built a fortress on the island of Athelney. And can you de- describe the the area around Athelney? Because I think... That's, I mean, I don't know that part of the world, but that was, it's quite surprising to me, the description of it, how it was sort of marshes. And then when it rained a lot, it became a lagoon and you could only navigate it on, in small boats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an extension of the whole Somerset marsh um, regime, you know, from around Glastonbury. All these famous places were effectively islands in a huge swamp, which receded with the different seasons and, um, and, so he's in the Somerset marshes. He's moving from place to place. Sometimes, uh, you know, Asa says in the deep marshes, it was so difficult that, you know, Pergrona paludosissima, he says, they were so marshy that you could only get, you could only get from one place to another by punt. And so they're improvising transport. So it's fairly small groups of people. And Athelney was one of these islands. And it's a tiny little... And you can still see it today, even though it's been drained. There's two 
there's two linked islands linked by a causeway and a long quite a long causeway which is still there and another causeway led to the mainland one one is called ling and one's called athelney and he he built Asa says he built a strong fortification on the landward side of the ling causeway so that landward access was the one point where you could approach it by land was massively defended you know and um and then on athelney itself where there had been a an iron age camp or something some kind of ditches like that he builds a defended a boor, a, a fortress with palisades and all that. And, uh, and excavations not so long ago uncovered uh, workshops with um, slag, um, stuff for creating metalwork and weapons, probably. You know, you can see. It, but I can't imagine there were that many people there. You know, a couple of hundred, something like that. These thanes, his leaders... The, the the alderman of Somerset, Athelnoth, who was his big ally in that moment, the one local leader who was with him throughout it. Um, you know, while Alfred was in one detachment, Athelnoth was moving through forests with another detachment and they were keeping in close contact. So, you know, that's that's kind of how they did it. Um, and they... And presumably uh, they were in contact with other people in the area who were also, you know, would join their... Yeah, Rebellion, yeah, I in, it was yeah. In then. fact, in, yeah, and, and in fact, the communications are the really interesting part of this because in the seventh week after Easter, that takes us to the fourth to the eleventh of May. Um, Is that the second scene? Is that the battle? Uh, it's it's about to happen. The battle, yeah, the second scene. They they in the seventh week after Easter, they they've sent the messages out to all their allies in the different parts, and they arrange a rendezvous, a place called Edgebet's Stone, which is. On the on the, the where the Dorset, Wiltshire, and Somerset borders meet, and the stones are still there. Actually, the boundary stones, and and uh, there he met with the levies from Somerset and Wiltshire and Western Hampshire, the the, the area that had not gone up, uh, over the water, um, and. Uh, and Asa has this wonderful passage where he says, um, uh, "When they saw the king again, it was as, as if he'd been brought back to life." after such terrible tribulations and everyone was filled with immense joy you know so you can feel the you can feel the elation of the you know they thought they'd had it yeah and of course they need him as their figurehead in order yeah to... no 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 you yes you can't you can't be without the the king really in those times the king is the one who provides the leadership and the moral leadership the courage the uh, you know he, he's he'll put himself in the front line of action if need be so uh, so so that rendezvous which takes place at the on the very edge of at the village of Pencilwood just above the A303 today probably a very ancient road the 303 the king's road it's called in some medieval sources and that's where they um they then so your first week of may 4th to the 11th they go to Edgebed stone the rendezvous happens and then one day later, they go to this place called Eiley Oak, which is um, near Warminster. And the next day, they attack the Viking army, which has moved has moved to a place called Eddington, which is quite a few miles south of Chippenham, uh, underneath Salisbury Plain. And whether the Vikings, the Danes, had moved there because they'd got intelligence that Alfred was assembling an army or whether they'd simply made it as a forward base to carry on their 
um, dismembering of Wessex, we don't know. But it was a royal estate, and it's right underneath Salisbury Plain. It's very, very atmospheric place. If you're taking the the mainland train down to Penzance, you you see the White Horse of Eddington on the left as you go there on the edge of the, the plain. And that takes us to about the 9th of May. And that's my second date, because curiously enough, 70 years later, a royal assembly was held at Eddington by a later king. And it does have this passage in the document where it says that we're, they're celebrating the great deeds of the ancestors. And, and as the battle probably was around the 9th of May, and that document's dated the 9th of May, I think that's... The date the, of the battle. I think that's the date of the Battle of Eddington. So, so that you've had 12 nights, the first catastrophic break-in of the, the Danish army. You've got the guerrilla war, and then the, um, <clears throat> then the attack, which probably caught the Danes by surprise. And has any of the uh, battlefield, do we know exactly where the battlefield was? Has there been a, any excavations? Do we have any idea of how the battle took place where the different forces were and that kind of thing. Yeah, no, it's a really interesting question. The, the, the Danes were camped at the royal estate, which was a big royal estate, you know, with a defended enclosure, a royal hall. It could, uh, it could accommodate quite a large royal assembly. It got lots of supplies and flocks, so that's where they're camped. Although everybody believes the battle was fought up on Salisbury Plain, up on the top, it's completely impossible. You know, it's kind of... It's, 300 feet above the valley and a steep drop you know it's it's the chronicle says that alfred attacked them at eddington at the royal estate and it also says that they began before dawn so i i suspect they made a night march from Oak and they they were able to attack the viking the danish army pretty much at dawn and they they were taken by surprise and asa says despite that the battle was ferociously fought Atrocita, he uses the word atrocita. And he does say that they were formed shield walls, so the, the Danish army was able to deploy before he actually launched his attack. And, um, but he wins after a you know, brutal struggle. And, of course, it's one of the most decisive battles in British history. Do we have any idea of the relative sizes of the two armies? We don't. I can't imagine they were that big, to be honest. Um, you know, maybe only, maybe as little as three or four thousand, but maybe a, maybe a bit bigger than that, you know, five, six thousand for the Viking army. We just don't know. What we do know is that Alfred then pursued them all the way back to their main base at Chippenham, where they'd gathered huge amounts of loot um, they'd got cattle penned all around the the main town and the royal residence prefer, for their own supplies and food store food supplies and stuff like that. He pursued them, presumably on the same day, because it says that those who were able, the Vikings who were able to get back into the fortress, the main army got back in, but those who weren't in time before they closed the gates, he killed them all. And then, once they're in Chippenham, he surrounds the place and he besieges them for 14 days. And Asa says that by then, terrified by hunger and cold and fear, and in the end by despair too, they sought peace with him and they offered him any hostages 
that he chose and they gave none in return which Asa says had, was a, was unheard of. You know, you all, you did these deals where you prison um, swaps. You get you you gave you gave hostages as a token yeah. of your 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 bond. You won't break it because otherwise they'll kill mm. the hostages, and and uh, they gave them with none in return. And there's a wonderfully a wonderfully uh, a personal touch in Asa's account where he says that when Alfred had received their embassy, and he he listened to it. He was moved to compassion, as is his wont, says Asa. He adds that little phrase, as is his wont. So he's still alive when he's writing this. And, and of course, Asa's a bishop, Christian bishop, so he would think that the merciful king, and perhaps some would have seen almost slightly critical. He's a bit soft-hearted, you know, <laughs> I don't know. But, but um, uh, so they surrender. What happens is that the, they, they make a bargain the king, Guthrum, the, the Danish king, agrees that he will leave their kingdom and never return, never attack but, it again, which he leave doesn't. But Wessex, not... He will leave yeah, Wessex. Not leave England. No, no, no. Oh, no, no, no. But Alfred, Alfred's only king yeah. of Wessex, of course. And he will go back to East Anglia, which is his, where his main base. But he won't attack Wessex again, and he keeps that bond, absolutely. Hello, it's Peter here. Many landscapes across the UK bear traces of historical migrations. Although Somerset is the land of the summer people, the winter months are also a very special time to explore the fusion of natural and human history that can be found here. If Michael has inspired you to see these places for yourself, why not join a tour run by our sponsors, Ace Cultural Tours. Their winter wildlife tour to the Somerset levels takes in key historical sites, such as Glastonbury Abbey and Alfred's hiding place at the Isle of Athelney, alongside some fantastic nature reserves. Keep an eye out for bitterns, barn owls and marsh harriers at one of the country's most exciting and beautiful wildlife projects, the mystically named Avalon Marshes, and explore one of the RSPB's oldest and largest nature reserves, at West Sedgemoor. To find out more about ACE and the variety of tours they offer in the UK and further afield, visit their website at www.aceculturaltours.co.uk or request a brochure by phoning 01223 841055. Can you take us to your third scene? Uh, going to come to the third day. He agrees that he will be baptised. And yes, okay, so, so, oh, hang on. Why? I don't, that was something that I found very interesting and, confu- and, and confusing. Was that part of, was it genuine? Do you think Guthrum genuinely felt that Christianity was uh, the right option? Do you think he did it because it was part of the terms of his surrender? He, he uh, obviously agreed to do it because he was defeated. He spent a lot of time with the king. He was impressed by the king. Uh, the king took him as his foster son, almost. They have a, it's like a kind of blood brothership, only it's like a foster son. Uh, he stands, well, as, his, he stand he stands as, his as his godfather, godfather at the, at the baptism. baptism and raises him from the font, says, uh, uh, you know. It's an, it's an amazing it, it's end an inc- to It's an incredible story. And, it, story. And, the, and it's not unusual in the Viking Age. You know, these Christian kings... You couldn't just go on killing each other out ad infinitum. And these Christian kings, they realised by then that the Danes are not going away. 
and that and that therefore we have to co-opt them into a new polity really and uh we have to and getting them to be christians was a really uh, important getting them to be christians is a really important part of it because then they're going to have the same rules and yeah the same yeah 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 we can talk to each other in the same language so he has and he he um the king had met alfred to do this baptism at, at, at the royal village of alla which is on the northern side of the somerset marshes with 30 of his best men who also his leaders you know the the jowls and the, the these mm. other people Thanks. and they a week later, although Asa says it's 12 days later, they, they have the final ceremony at a place called Wedmore. And Wedmore's a really fabulous place today. You know, it's, it's again, it was once in the marshes. It's now sort of just on the edge with the wonderful views out over the what was the marshlands of Somerset. And it's a very, very atmospheric uh, church. And... Uh, and that's where the final ceremonies took place about 12 days later, um, and which I think might have been on the day of John the Baptist, you know, around the... What's the day of John the Baptist? Around the 21st, 23rd of June. Uh, that would fit the, the timetable. And, and Asa says that Alfred freely bestowed many rich gifts and excellent treasures on him and his men, you know. So the end result of this brutal conflict in which... You know, had Alfred been cornered and captured, he would have fought to the death or suffered some awful tragedy and his family would have been Well, and it was really away. hanging by a thread, wasn't it? And it was hanging on a thread. If, if our accounts are true, Alfred's not only won the battle, but he's actually, he's actually reached out to the Danes and honoured them uh, uh, and honoured Guthrum as a, a great king and, uh, and given them rich gifts and behaved in the way that Christian kings did to each other. So it's a token of the f sign of the future, perhaps. And although there would be many other battles, Alfred spent his whole life fighting battles for the next 20 years. And remember, he was not a well man. Asa describes, sounds like something like Crohn's disease. Mm. You know, he's he's got some major ailment of the bowels which afflicted him all the time and must have been agony if you were in the saddle or you were living in the marshes you well know. also with nothing to eat imagine you're yeah I mean, it's yeah, bad yeah no so he yeah. so and he suffers that all his life according to to Asa but he continues to fight and fight and fight until his death aged about 50 51 um presumably almost worn out by the sheer you know, the fighting never stopped. Mm. But it was the beginning of the creation of what would in the end become an Anglo-Scandinavian kingdom of England. Yeah, because the Dane law was recognised, wasn't it, a few years yeah, later? Yeah, they make a treaty dividing uh, the, the Danish and English lands, which ran along Watling Street and then the River Lee to, to the Thames. And uh, probably until Athelstan's time in the 920s, that r remained a real border with border posts for cross you know supervising who crossed over and and a later source says that it was in Athelstan's time that uh, uh, those restrictions were lifted and you could go freely and sell and buy and sell across the border and did Guthrum take Christianity back to his you know the other Danes because I know that Christianity arrived in Denmark itself quite late in comparison to 
um, England. So was he one of the first Danes to be baptised and be... Well, he, he was, yeah, I mean, he, he's not, I mean, what, he has no contact, so far as we know, with, with Denmark anymore. He's the king of the East Angles, uh, the successor to St. Edmund. So, um, uh, but yeah, no, he, he rules as, as a Christian king till his death in the 890s, I think. Amazing. Such a, as you say, such a turning point. I mean, it could, if it had gone the other way, we would be Danish. Yeah, more yeah. Danish. <laughs> yes, yes. Or, yes, or, or, or um, the character of the country. I mean, it's unlikely that Danes would have ca- conquered all of England, you know, and, and uh, you imagine the southwest, for example, is so distinct still, and it's, yeah. know, it still spoke Cornish down in Cornwall and that sort of stuff. It, it's very unlikely that, that they would have conquered the whole of, of Wessex. But you could imagine a kind of Anglo-Danish kingdom of Wessex if Alfred had been defeated and with more immigration and a, and a different character to the culture. And whether, whether English culture would have emerged in the same way as a national culture arose in the 10th century. It's hard to say, you know, you see all these great developments that have become visible later on the people like Athelstan, you know, the the huge assemblies, which the are the democracy. origins really of our parliamentary politics, the legal system, the, the, the even the literary language and the culture. Uh, there are so many developments that come out of this unified kingdom of England created by Alfred's successors. In what way that would have been different with an Anglo-Danish king ruling? Well, and to go back to what we were talking about at the very beginning about um, the empire and, you know, I think also you write about it in your introduction with Brexit and the whole idea of Englishness and where what people identify with historically and there's the whole issue of the Anglo-Saxons and but if you look right back properly at our history you know as you say the original original people were Celts and then you know you just have these waves of of new peoples coming in and and you know that is continuing today and that is who we are we're not one type of race are we we're, we've always and that's one of the things that makes our language no, we've so always, extremely yeah. large and rich. And, um, you know, that, yeah, I, I thought that was interesting, especially with regards to this idea of Englishness and, and Brexit and sort of populist populism, identifying very much with the Anglo-Saxon yes. part of our history. But actually, that's just picking and choosing because what about all the years when we were part of the Roman Empire? Yeah, and, yeah. I mean, you look at the, the DNA experts say to us that if your ancestry is before the Second World War as a Britain, mm. then two two thirds of your DNA will be pre Roman. Yeah, that's Yeah, I mean that's and, and that doesn't matter whether you live in And that's Celtic, ha- isn't Hans, it? Yeah, yeah, Brythonic or whatever you want to mm. call it. And then the layers on top, there are many of them. They reckon maybe and these are very loose figures, but the Anglo-Saxon, the old English, let's call it that, element 12 to 15% added to the, the pool, Viking, Danish, 7 or 8%, and the smaller percentages for... But these what about things... Roman? Because I imagine that would be smaller, would it, or not? No, smaller, yeah, yeah, yeah. Most of the Romans were Britons. 
You know, the Romans didn't yeah. leave, the Romans didn't leave in 410. They simply took their military force away. You know. Yeah. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, the, the the big confusions are often between language and ethnicity as well. You know, it's uh, um, you know the Norman addition to. Oh to yeah, Britain. let's not forget the Normans. <laughs> you know, the Norman addition to Britain in the in the eleventh century is probably only about fifty thousand people. You know, and that French is spoken for for four hundred years. But they were fifty thousand of the most powerful. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but it's just to make the point that that uh, uh, you know you could go searching forever in the DNA of India and never find the English, uh, never find the British. Yeah. But the language is <laughs> English language is spoken by. Hundreds of millions of people to a greater or lesser extent, you know, so <clears throat> language is not ethnicity. No, no, it's, I suppose it's just the more visible side. Yeah. It's been such a fascinating conversation. Thank you. Uh, so now we would like to hear, please, what you would have taken from the various moments that we've visited today. Um, what would you like to have picked up and brought back to the present with you to keep for yourself? Well, Asa says that tells the story that when Alfred was little, and he couldn't read or write, but the, his, the, the mother asked the brothers to, to um, show them a book with a poem in it, and uh, and the person who could recite that would win the book. And uh, although Alfred couldn't read or write, he he learned it off by heart, and he recited it, and he won the book. Now, whether he still had that book when he was old I don't know but Asa does say that he had a a little book which was full of all sorts of things that he added to over time um uh, you know prayers and thoughts and excerpts from things and all that as a as a kind of commonplace book and he always carried that with him and I like to think that he he uh, he had that book in the marshes and he still had that book into his old age and I think if there's one thing that I'd like to bring back from then it would be that that would be a real window into his soul and you could write yeah. the definitive <laughs> biography of Alfred if you had that I think yeah. that's a wonderful choice um, and I just one more very quick question is I read that you say that he went to Rome when he was four years old yes yeah he had two trips to Rome and you can imagine, just imagine the effect that this would have had on a young... Well, imagine the journey. I mean... Kid, yeah, yeah. About 90, it's about 90 days, according to the pilgrim yeah. gazetteers with all the stopping places. Just imagine the effect on a little boy from, you know, very provincial kingdom in the far west. And you're going to Rome and you see these immense churches, the old St. Peter's and Santa Maria Maggiore and, and the, the glittering sumptuous gilded treasures that and the, the mosaics well and, and the, the forum and the, all the, the pantheon and, the forum, and all the everything. roman stuff as well yeah what what that tells you and would have told him about you know history and the world and and uh, and the rebirth of rome under christianity latin christianity and you wonder whether that lodged in his mind and gave him a very interesting perspective on what rulership should be on the role of wisdom on the relationship of uh, the modern world to the ancient world you know i mean why did he translate boethius's consolation of philosophy for goodness sake or orosius's history of the world you know um 
He, he's going back to Rome and uh, why did he Gregory, why did he go to Gregory Rome the Great? When he was so little. What was it? A pilgrimage? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was part of a, a larger. Um, but with uh, his uh, parents, or yes, because um, age four that does seem you know given what traveling was like in um, the ninth century. Yeah, that does seem like quite a young age to to be taken off on a journey like that, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, 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 yeah. But he, he wasn't the heir to the throne. He was way down the pecking order. You oh, know. so he was very dispensable. Yeah, you know, if something happened. Yeah, he, he's, he has two visits to Rome and he's gone with his father, Athelwolf. Yeah, but that's something um, I'm sort of constantly astonished by was how much people travelled. And I was researching um, Benedict Biscop, the yeah, yeah. founder of Jarrow and Wearmouth. And he went five times. Yes, that's him, right. Yeah. And then he yeah. died on the way back the last time. But yeah. it, it just seems extraordinary. Um, yes, yeah. And, 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 and Benedict Biscop, of course, um, you know, he's gathering manuscripts. He's save, yeah. saving stuff yeah. from the wreckage that can be um, a resource for the monks in Wearmouth and Jarrow. Yeah. And, and he would have known, and he would have known Hadrian, Abbot Hadrian the African, oh, and yes. Theodore Tarsus very well. In fact, I've often wondered whether, you know, he knew them in Rome. One of them's a Syrian, uh, Greek speaker and Syriac speaker, and Hadrian, coming from North Africa, the the Greek speaking part of North Africa was obviously brilliant linguist, but Greek and Latin, you know, and they're being sent off to Anglo-Saxon England. Neither of them can have known any old English, you know, and maybe Benedict Bis- Biscop was the guy who, who taught them a bit. Sitting in an Italian restaurant in Rome yeah, going, now guys, this, this is how it works, you know, yeah. because, I mean, funnily enough, I know this is sort of off tangent, really, but you can see them. There's a little moment Eating in those. spelt spaghetti or something. Yeah, those, those, those biblical commentaries, there's one passage in a, not in the Milan manuscript, but it's in can't remember where, Munich or St. Gall, Copenhagen, uh, where um, they're arguing over the meaning of a Latin word, larum, and, and the translation that they, they are, they're given is, is heron, hragra. Mm. And, the, and the, the student says, no, Abbot Hadrian says that's, that's wrong. It's, it's not hragra, it's a meal, M-E-A-W which is a seabird and of course that's a that's a the old english word for a seagull and um, and it's uh, and it's still a dialect word in in northumbria in the north you know for a, a mule for a for a cuz that's for a the seabird. sound they make do you think that's and yeah 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 <laughs> and and uh, uh, so there you can see you see them close up pretty pretty good they've they've they're yeah, old english by then is, yes between, between sometimes several languages you know so yeah they not only traveled far but they were real citizens well of yeah the world. Transi- translation the the book i wrote was so much about translation and just how absolutely fundamental it is for any kind of knowledge being passed down through civilization through through, through any through any culture and what's brilliant about the alfred story of course is that he these we've been talking about about his his wars today but his um uh, you know his decision to initiate this series of translations is he explains himself in the covering letter in one of the manuscripts where he says you know i could see how learning in in england was just uh, just declined and uh, you couldn't get people any more um south of the south of the, the the humber indeed south of the thames i can't remember anybody who could really translate their latin letters properly in, into old english and he said and I, therefore i decided that 
would do something about this and we would take the texts that it was most important for people to know and we'd turn them into Old English because this is the only way forward. And then slowly in the next century, of course, it works back back and you you and start, start looking Latin at the again in latin again yeah. and and the, the circle comes to that full, must full have been circle. going to rome that opened his eyes to that kind of thing don't you think? well you think so you think so it's a, it's a massive experience for for a young child and you have the first experience age four and it and it's um um you know it must have been the sense impressions must have been just overwhelming but he goes back on a second trip and uh presumably when he's, he's a, an, an adult? No, no, or? no, no, no. When he's still a child, but the second time, you imagine he could take it in more. Yeah, um, I could talk to you all day, but I know that you're very busy. Um, so I'm going to say thank you so much, Michael Wood. Um, this has been an absolute joy. Thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure. That was me, Violet Muller, talking to Michael Wood the other day about Alfred the Great who is one of the big characters he describes in his iconic book, In Search of the Dark Ages. It has just been republished in a special extended and revised 40-year anniversary edition. As always, you can find out more about this and all our other episodes at tttpodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>